You're very welcome to the Firm and Fast Golf Podcast. I'm your host, Shane Darby. Today, we welcome Robin Bargman back to the podcast for the next installment of the serendipity of early golf. Last time, we concluded as early golf became popular in Scotland at the beginning of the 15th century. Today's episode explores various landmarks in the history of Flanders and the Netherlands and how these times are associated with both the rise and subsequent fall of the Dutch game of golf. To be clear, that's golf with a C. This game of golf is indelibly linked to the ruling burger classes who commissioned Dutch master painters such as Averkamp and van der Velde to detail their golfing exploits. Along the way, we'll also take a look at the Protestant Reformation and the Eighty Years' War, the fall of Antwerp, and the associated rise of Amsterdam, the Spanish Armada, the Battle of Waterloo, the Dutch East India Companies, and indeed the formation of the first golf club in the Netherlands in 1872, which was actually located in Batavia, in the Dutch East Indies. Modern-day Jakarta, Indonesia, which at the time was a Dutch colony. This episode very much sets the context for our concluding episode with Robin, where we will investigate the beginnings of Dutch golf from the 1890s. Once again, the depth of Robin's knowledge is extensive. I'm very grateful to him for the time he extended to me towards the series. Thank you to you for tuning in. We really hope you do enjoy the show. We, where we left it on a Friday, Robin, was that you suggested that golf as we know it started in Scotland in the 1500s and it started in Holland in the 1600s. So I, I guess I'm interested to understand how it started and, and what it looked like in Holland in the 1600s. I mean, I know there's a reference to uh, the introduction of bringing the game to America. One of the earliest known mentions of the sport on the continent was known as a Dutch ordinance issued at Fort Orange, Albany in 1659. That was most likely golf, is that correct? Yeah, that, that's the, that's golf with a C. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting, uh, but it's basically not relevant uh, because it, uh, it only relates to the Dutch colonists there. Okay. Uh, and New Netherlands, as it was called, was basically taken over by the English. And, and there is no... No proof or no suggestion at all uh, that the English colonists who were taking over the business, uh, uh, the Dutch actually did stay there. The, the, the colonists who were there stayed there. A lot of Irish colonists also came in uh-huh. later. That was uh, about a hundred years later, and, and then another wave two hundred years later. And there was always a bit of a fight going on between the Irish and the and the old Dutch colonists. Uh, as farmers, you know, taking the land. Sure. There's no proof at all that uh, the, the game of golf was in any way uh, transmitted to the English or to the Americans mm-hmm. that way. Okay. So, I, I mean, may, maybe then I'm intrigued as to early golf in the 1600s in Holland. Yeah. Well, the earliest uh, document uh that we have uh is a school book 
1552, and it's a Latin school book made by uh, Peter van Averden. I think I talk about that in my book, uh, in, in, in the Serendipity book. Do you have that or? I do have it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's, oh, the, okay. that's the lingua, that's the, the Latin poem, is it? Yeah. 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 It's, it's actually a booklet uh, used for schoolboys that the grammar school in the old days was called uh, uh, the Latin school. Okay. And that was a preparation for university. The word university was also later, but, uh, well, about the same time. But anyway, uh, at, at university, Latin was the standard language. Uh, so you had to learn Latin. Uh, and, 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 and so this Peter van Avila, he wrote a, a, a school book, book for uh, Latin conversation. So it's not a dictionary, it's, it's a conversation book. And he set it up actually in subjects uh, like the kitchen or the house or the garden. Uh, and he actually also um, had four chapters on games. One was cats, catchpell, tennis. Uh, one was, I think, burgle, bolle. And that's actually putting the ball... It's, it's in a way similar to a stick and ball game, but it's pushing the ball through a a, a round uh, piece of metal, huh? Yeah, a ring. I think you. Some people call it ring ball. And then there was cards, I think, and of course uh, calls. And he describes actually how you play calls. It doesn't say there if it's played on ice or on land. I think it's played on land there. But if you read the translation, I, I've given the translation in English uh, in, in, in the Serendipity book. If, if you put those, and I put in all the lines uh, of, the, of the whole chapter, if you put them actually under each other, uh, you can clearly see it's a long game and that the the goal is actually a a, a hole in the ground uh -huh. so that that's an early reference that they were already playing a game similar to uh, today's game of golf huh? swinging at the ball and finishing at a hole uh, that you where you have to put it into, and they they do talk about you know putting it into the hole with a a, a small stroke or a, you know a, a smooth stroke, and you're not allowed to push. That's also interesting. You have to hit it at, at, towards the hole. And this school book was used uh, very much in the Southern Netherlands, uh, Flanders. It was first published in in Ghent. Uh, near Bruges, uh, but it was extremely popular. I think there were uh, 16 editions and the latest uh, something in, in 1680 or so. Uh -huh. But as I said, actually, the, the, the game developed 
as a game from this rough uh, Solomon and Culver, a game uh, played by individuals toward, towards the target, and especially a uh, hole in the ground on land, say around the middle of the uh, 16th century in the southern Netherlands. There was a whole transformation actually during that period. We were in war with the Habsburg kings, uh, with the overlords for independence of the Netherlands. And uh, halfway, uh, we gave up and the northern Netherlands split off and the southern Netherlands stayed part of the Habsburgs and the southern Netherlands, uh, which is now Belgium, and the northern Netherlands, which is now Holland, or also called the Netherlands, uh, split off actually after 1585, the fall of Antwerp. And don't forget, actually, in, in about 60% of the population of Antwerp, which was the largest merchant town in the northwest of Europe, they all moved to the north. The rise of Amsterdam is all due to uh, Flemish people. And the golden century, the century, 17th century. But that's actually when they, this game of, of golf actually moved to the north as again, say late 16th century. And what I have found is that it became a signature game of the new rich burghers who, who were actually in power in the seven provinces, we established ourselves as an independent republic. So we had no king in the, in the Northern Netherlands, and we basically had, uh, made this parliament became the sovereign ruler of the Netherlands, and, and we were a republic. And we chose that this model based on an earlier model in Venice. We actually did try to get Elizabeth the famous Elizabeth, to be actually queen of the Northern Netherlands. But she refused and because uh, she was afraid of a second armada. Uh, but actually the role of the, 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 uh, the Flemish in defeating the armada was, is, uh, you only find that in, not in the English uh, history books, but in the, in the true history books on... Uh, <laughs> They do exist. Once they've been researched properly, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> Extensively. <laughs> If you go to the University of Ghent, there are many books on the uh, what happened there. Okay. I lost track, actually, where it had it. Uh, oh, yeah, this Antwerp was closed off, basically. Yeah? We, we closed Antwerp off. Uh, the waterway to Antwerp was closed off by the Dutch because we didn't want the Spanish to have a, 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 an entry there for their ships and therefore for their military. Yeah. It was basically the only large harbor available to the Southern Netherlands. Uh, uh, Bruges was already cut off. Uh, there was uh, uh, too much sand in the water there, so it wasn't deep enough. So, and that was the, and otherwise you had to land on, on the coast. Uh, the, Sandy coast that, that doesn't work. Yeah. So, um, actually, the 80%, 90% of the wealth 
uh, wealth, wealthy Belgians, let's call them uh, Antwerp people, they all moved out. Antwerp was a ghost town. Uh-huh. And actually, the, uh, they very, it was the same language uh, as, as, as the North. Uh, we all spoke Dutch. That's why actually scientists of the University of Ghent, for example, I know quite a few, and, and quite a few are speakers actually in Scotland frequently. Scots always say, you, you speak Flemish. And they say, no, Flemish speak Dutch. There's only one Dutch language. So you've got provinces and Flanders, Brabant, Gelre, Holland, those are... There used to be 17 provinces, and that was the United 17 Provinces. Charles V, the Habsburg king, who had his seat actually in, in Brussels, he tried to make a unified a country of these 17 provinces. And that was basically the start of the revolt because uh, it meant central government in Brussels. We, the whole thing we... We're having now again, and a lot of taxes, direct income taxes and indirect sales taxes. And this was quite important because moving power to to uh, Brussels basically means that you take it away from the large towns. Uh-huh. In the old days, towns were in charge of politics and, and, and the army. So a, a town like uh, Antwerp, and Bruges, they were hugely important, large population, and the uh, say the, the 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 ruler of the town, which was usually a count, he was in charge, so he didn't like this thing going on with Charles V in Brussels establishing a large state uh, consisting of seventeen provinces. So what happened actually with the, with the revolt uh, eventually. It was in Holland. Every school kid knows about it. It's called the Eighty Years' War, from 1568 to 1648, eh? and it ended up actually with the Northern Netherlands being recognized as a sovereign state, albeit a republic without a king, yeah. and uh, with the Flemish uh, having a, a large influence, especially in Holland. Holland was one of the seven provinces and made up about 80% of the economic power of the republic. So Holland was the, the, and the provinces north and south Holland is what actually used to be Holland. And you have, uh, of the south of that is Zeeland, and then you get Flanders. And Zeeland, Holland, Zeeland, and Flanders were always very strongly united. Usually had the same ruler, and it ended up actually uh, all, all these all these seventeen provinces by marriage. Uh, that's how it worked in the old days. These seventeen provinces were all in the hands of the same man, which was Charles V of, of the Habsburg uh, king, and so he. You know, large part of Germany, Spain, and the Netherlands was was all part of uh, his realm. So it was fairly powerful, and, and so the revolt against uh, the Habsburgs was quite quite a thing, and it was all part of the this 
this uh, Protestantism, which was also used, but it it comes up quite a lot that Protestantism against uh, the Catholic Church was important. It was, but it was used as an excuse. Actually, uh, uh, the most important thing was obviously economic uh, and political power. Mm-hmm. But anyway, in the Northern Netherlands. Uh, what developed because of all these Flemish uh, in the north, uh, what developed was their own culture, a new culture in Holland, and a new, very wealthy burger class who were basically in charge of the republic and who ruled the republic uh, through the states general. And you, all, you also had the, the Prince of Orange, of course, who basically led the uh, the revolts in 1568, and who was always, always considered actually, he was the lieutenant for uh, uh, Charles V and later Philip II, uh, the great enemy of uh, Elizabeth. He was murdered, and uh, uh, but basically the Orange family, Orange Nassau family, was always put in charge of the, say, the military side of the revolt. So the Oranges were always head of the army and the navy, but never actually uh, in charge of the country. And they were called Stadtholder. And a Stadtholder means a lieutenant. Stadt is a a place and a holder is you hold the place of. Interestingly is... Linguistically, the word steward and stadtholder is exactly the same. And actually, this, the steward kingship uh, uh, also evolved from a, a being a lieutenant for the king, the, a steward of the king. A steward is also etymologically comes from stewart, a stay is a place, and wart is holding okay. place. So uh, Stadtholder and, and Stuart, is it, interesting, they all, all have the same background, is that you basically rule in place of, of uh, uh, the king, and you become more powerful than the king, and you basically take his place. Fascinating. That's why the Stuarts became king, and, and in, in Holland, the Stadtholders also became the head of the country. Okay. In, and after Waterloo, but that's a whole different story. Uh, uh, Britain needed a a, a state in be- between Germany, France, and and England. So that's when uh, the seventeen provinces, the North and the Southern Netherlands, were actually put together again and made a, a United Kingdom uh, after Waterloo. Uh-huh. That lasted until. Uh, 1830, that's what the Belgians say, and we say 1840, because it lasted 10 years before independence was given to them. But that's where the two countries split off again, because the southern Netherlands were actually always been part of the Habsburg culture, Catholic, ruled by aristocrats, and the northern Netherlands were Protestant, and ruled by the the, uh, the burghers, always a democratic. So you know, culturally, the the north and the south were hugely different. Uh-huh. 
But anyway, after after the fall of Antwerp and and basically the rise of the Republic, due to this influx of capital uh, from the southern Netherlands, uh, and mainly Flemish and Brabanters. Um, uh, the there there was also a a what you saw is uh, you know that uh, they they had their own well in the north they there was a need of a of a, an own signature game and this actually coincided with the the uh, these long cold winters especially between 1575 and 1650 winters were extremely cold and this was part of the little ice age but especially during that period winters were uh, say 25 to 30 degrees below centigrade and lasted three months uh, so all waterways w were frozen and a warfare was impossible so actually uh, during three months uh, economic and political life came to a standstill. Uh, so there was enough time to do other things. Uh, and that's when a lot of Dutch games, which were usually played on land, moved to the ice. And why? Because, uh, yeah, it's, uh, there was a lot of water, of course, and the, and the surface was flat. And you could see, actually, especially it started with the paintings of Pieter Breugel, where you clearly see these villagers actually enjoying themselves with games on ice. Interestingly, there is actually in the southern Netherlands, uh, the people enjoying themselves uh, on ice in winter are, you know, the typical uh, villagers and farmers and, and kids, but not wealthy burghers. And you see, actually, once life changed in the Northern Netherlands uh, and, and they developed the, their own games and golf was, became a signature game of, of the wealthy burghers. And if you look at the paintings, and, and uh, you see a very well-dressed man. If you look at the paintings of Afrikamp, and I've actually addressed this much more in my last book than in the Serendipity book, uh, although you can see, if you look at the paintings, paintings from the Southern Netherlands, it's basically the peasant playing games, and in the Northern Netherlands, it's uh, it's the, the wealthy burghers. And those were the people, the Dutch masters actually, saw, of course, sold their paintings to the uh, to their rich clientele, which was the which was the the wealthy burger. And what did the wealthy burger in the north want? Which is the basis of the the, the Dutch masters at eh? the golden age of the Dutch masters, um, you know Rembrandt, Frans Hals, all those guys, eh? you know them. And for golf, it's important to know Avercamp and Van der Velde. You can see that the 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 people playing golf uh, and, and uh, are the wealthy burghers. And the paintings they bought had different genres. It still life, and so the flowers, portraits, and landscapes.
So those were the three genres that that uh, the Dutch masters painted and and the clientele bought. Don't forget, in the old days, uh, uh, the the master paintings were working for the church, huh? so you had religious subjects. It changed a bit with the, of course, with the Renaissance and the Protestantism and different burger classes. But religious paintings in the in the north, Rembrandt started actually with religious paintings, but uh, uh, he moved on to portraits, uh, and and then, uh, well, he, he actually stayed with portraits, although he didn't like it. And you had group portraits. Uh, the Night Watch is basically uh, a group portrait of the Civil Guard of Amsterdam. You had a lot of Civil Guards. And those were actually also the wealthy burghers. Huh? It was not a, a professional army. Basically, the wealthy burghers uh, defended the town with their... It's, it's, it's like you have in Scotland, uh, like the, the Royal Company of Archers is basically... We call it schutterijen, shooters, and shooters were basically also archers in the beginning. So the Royal Company of Archers and schutterijen in the Netherlands are basically the same type of organization. And 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 so from those paintings, basically the the portraits, and especially uh, wealthy burghers would portrait their kids. And sometimes they would, they were very proud of their kids. And sometimes they would portrait their kids with a with a with a colf in their hands, huh? Holding a colf. You, I, I've got a actually through Christie's. I purchased a, a, a famous one myself. Uh, and that's the boy in the blue dress holding a colf by Bartholomeus van der Helst. My wife was a bit surprised. I, I, <laughs> I heard from a, a friend of mine who is a tennis historian in London, a very wealthy American girl. She knows everything about real tennis. And she said, your favorite portrait is up for sale in, uh, in Christie's. Did you know that? I said, oh, shit, I didn't know. And, and so I checked and I had two days. So I registered at Christie's and the, you have to show that you have enough deposits or whatever. Uh-huh. And I thought I'd, I'd check. But this was actually a an auction of... Uh, Surrealist paintings by um, Magritte, the Salvador Dali, and you had this Bartholomeus van der Helst of the 17th century with the portrait of the, the boy in the blue dress and, and the colf in his hand. But, it's, but anyway, I registered and, I, and so I played. I set a limit for myself. I think I, I played the game not not being too quick. Uh, and, and then so I, I actually reached my limit, uh, but the I could clearly see it was online like this. 
I could clearly see the uh, the guy in front with the uh, what's his name? What do you, what do you call those people? Uh, the the head of the uh, auctioneer. Oh, the auctioneer. Yeah, uh, he was looking at, at you know at the front row, and uh, what you have is some usual traders sitting in the front row. And so he looked at him and and uh, and he said no. Okay. So and then he dropped the hammer and I. So I had to phone my wife. <laughs> anyway, it's not important. But I, I thought it was an important thing to get back to the Netherlands. It had been, uh, and I think it was taken to England by uh, Princess Mary, who was married to uh, the mother of William the Third. And Mary Stuart, uh, she was painted by Van der Helst also. And, and so I think this is an allegory on her son. Will, so it would be William III. But I told you uh, Friday that, you know, the oranges and, and the aristocracy didn't play golf. But the golf did have a certain meaning. So if you see all these portraits with little boys, they look like little girls because because little boys were also wearing uh, dresses up. And that's why sometimes they say it's a girl, but it, they're all boys and you can see by their dress that it is a boy or a girl. The colors are different. Um, that the, um, uh, the they're portrayed with a colf in their hand and the oranges didn't play colf. But the, the in, in these paintings, of the rich burghers, they had attributes like dogs or drums. A dog is a, a, a symbol or a, a metaphor for loyalty. Uh, and fruit is actually uh, a metaphor for fruitful life, many kids. And the calf, interestingly, is a metaphor for uh, discipline. Uh, and uh, a good pupil. So if you see a portrait of a boy with a golf, it basically means he is actually a good pupil. He's he's a very disciplined boy. Uh -huh. Sometimes it's wishful thinking of the father giving the. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it's not because the boy played golf. You see, a three, they're always portraits of three-year-old boys, so they don't play golf. Uh -huh. But anyway, so in the in uh, in the north, golf uh, had become a signature game, and during winter time, it, all these games moved to the ice. Now, the interesting thing I talked about uh, the Bolland game yesterday to you and Bonspieler, you remember? Yeah, Bolland spell, and basically that's a game played with wo wooden balls, and you roll it over the ground, but these are not perfectly around these these balls these bollum i'll help you a bit uh, uh, the game of bowls uh, etymologically bowls and bollum is etymologically connected and the the way it's played is it's over land and the balls curl and the reason they curl uh, the, uh, they're not round but they're basically flat on <laughs> two sides kind of flat uh, and and one rounding is more round than the other. So if you roll that, the ball will curve. 
yeah, curl. Yeah. And that's why the, the word curling, actually, because in uh, curling bonspiel, as we called it yesterday, in Dutch it's called uh, a krulbollen spell. Now you hear the similarity. A krulbollen spell, curling bonspiel. Uh, the game was played over land, and during winter what they did is they uh, these were flat things. They basically put them on the ice and and and, and stuck a wooden pen in on in on the side and then shoved it over the ice uh-huh. towards the target. So there are many 16th century paintings, especially by Beugel, Peter van der Beugel, Beugel, huh? Peter van der Beugel, where you see this, basically, this baller game being played on ice. So there's actually a lot of discussion going on uh, with, with Scottish curling historians. I try to explain to them that basically it, the curling game, as we know today, played with stones, is an assimilation of a, a Scots game where granite stones were thrown over the ice over a long distance, eh? using strength and not uh, technique. Those cuting stones, as they call them, they're not round at all. Uh, so triangular, they had a handle, so you could throw them uh, large distances over the ice. And at the same time, in, in Scotland, you also have the wooden poles like we had in, in the Netherlands. Eh? And they were actually also put on the ice. So you had two types of instruments that we used uh, on ice. Uh, so actually the wooden ball and, and the granite stone were basically merged. And they used the round stone. So the, the stone developed into a round ball similar to the wooden one. And this was all, say, 15th, 16th century that uh, the round stone actually became popular and made by this, the same Flemish who, who basically developed the game of golf in Scotland. So, yes, actually, in, in the Northern Republic, you see this game of golf being played on ice during winter time by the rich burghers. And they loved being portrayed by the Dutch masters to show off in their homes, look how much money I have and this is what I like. Uh, and they like having portraits of themselves and indeed also portraits of or, or landscapes with the game of golf on it. But actually the, the power of the rich burghers suddenly came to an end in the Orangist revolt of 1672 Actually, the, the Republic had become too powerful and England was, especially England, uh, hated the fact that we were the master of the seas and basically monopolized the trade at sea. And although we reinstated Charles II as King of England in, the, in 1666, he was actually put back in power. I, I was going to say the Glorious Revolution, but that was... 1688, uh, when William III was put on the throne in England as King of England, uh, King Billy. Yeah. Before that, actually, after Charles I was 
had his head cut off by Oliver Cromwell, the sons Charles the Second and James the uh, Second basically lived in the Netherlands, and we had a, a palace for them built in. Uh, well, they used the palace in in in, in Breda, and although the family was all in the Hague, but they were a lot in the Hague. But we we couldn't demonstrate too much that they were close friends of the oranges because uh, we didn't want to uh, annoy the Habsburgers and the French king, Louis XIV, not the greatest friend of William III. But anyway, after Cromwell was defeated, using a lot of influence, political power, financing, uh, Charles II was shipped back to London by the Dutch fleet and military and basically reinstated as the King of England. There's also a famous Dutch gift given to him by the city of Amsterdam, which is worth, in today's value, about 3 billion euros of Dutch art. So that was given to him, and it's basically the main part of the royal collection. The Dutch art in the royal collection is the Dutch gift uh, given to Charles II in those days. If you go to Wikipedia and look at Dutch gift, you will see the history of that. It's interesting. But we thought that he would actually be our friend. But the Navigation Act, which was instated by Oliver Cromwell, and it, it, it basically stated that any goods coming into England have to be shipped by English ships. And any English goods uh, shipped overseas have to be shipped in uh, English ships. So it's basically taking Dutch ships out of international trade. And if anyone violated that, it was reason for uh, military intervention, if you put it in today's terms. But so this was actually the reason for the fact that in total, four battles at sea were fought out. Officially, the we call it the English Wars in the 17th century, but they basically depleted our treasury. So in, by 1672, the Republic was almost bankrupt. And then I think it was still Charles, or maybe it was his brother, James II, who, uh, I, it doesn't matter. Anyway, Charles II was, who was supposed to be our friend, actually became our largest enemy because of the pressure of Parliament, he he was basically pretty envious about the wealth and power. But he, uh, in 1672, he made a deal uh, with, the, with the French king to invade. He would cut off the, the, the seas and, and Louis XIV would come with his army from the south. And then they would divide the republic between England and, and France. That was the deal. So this was actually the time when William of Orange, and he was only, I think at that time, 1672, was about 22 or 23, young guy, but he was very talented, well-educated, and he had a, a, a proper hate for uh, for the French. <laughs> and Louis XIV, uh, hated him uh, in reverse too. Those two were, were not friends. 
So uh, the Dutch population basically blamed the rich burghers uh, who were in political power in, in The Hague for this disaster uh, with the English on there and the, and the French army in Utrecht. Uh, so they gave, there was a this Orangist revolt and actually the leaders of the Dutch burghers, uh, political burghers in The Hague, they were basically lynched. And William III was, was they always deny that it was his instruction. So we, we don't want the family of Orange uh, to be murderers, but it was quite clear. And basically William III was in power. And from that day on, actually you don't see anything that relates to the game of golf anymore. Huh. And why? Because it was a game of the rich burghers and they were thrown out. So if you were seen with that, you were a collaborator with the enemy, you see. Okay. Uh, and some people say it's because the winters became uh, less cold and, and, and also religion changed a bit in Protestantism. It became a bit firmer that you weren't allowed to uh, wage such large sums of money uh, playing golf and things like that. So golf was, in a way, seen by the church as being the reason for bad behavior by burghers and things like that. But anyway, but the main reason was actually uh, this the Orangist revolt and the the powerful burghers being put out of power. That's why actually, so the clientele was gone and the Dutch painters actually never came back with portraits of golfers on the ice, you see. And no portraits of boys with, with golfs in their hands. Anything uh, related to uh, the game of golf would disappear. And and the new game of golf uh, that was already there, played by the, the basically the uh, the inns, in a way they, they wanted to develop in income for themselves. Uh, inns beca became social institutes for burghers to uh, to convene. So what you have to do is arrange facilities for them around the inn and the taverns uh, uh, for them to play. And that used to be the, 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 the ring ball and, and the bowls, but they developed this new game of golf, basically in the same... The indoor version, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's okay. the indoor game. The 5 to 15 mm -hmm. meter game with boards... Uh, which still played. You've got, I think there are 13 courts remaining in the Netherlands in the mid 19th century. I think in the Netherlands there was something like 1,800 golf courts. It's amazing how uh, how that, uh, but that disappeared actually with the at the end of the 19th century with rich. But uh, anyway, but it's still there. Maybe if we if we could take a look, Robin, at the Dutch East India Company. And I know early modern, uh, something I read recently was that in 1872, mm -hmm. in Batavia, in the Dutch East Indies, so present-day Jakarta, that, I, I believe, was the first, in inverted commas, Dutch yeah. golf course. Is that right? Yeah, it's the first course in the Netherlands, because Dutch East Indies were part of the Kingdom of the Netherlands, to put it actually in official terms. My apologies. No, <laughs> that's all right. 
So in terms of the, I mean, obviously the early pioneers, and presumably there was some interaction between the Dutch East India Company and the British East India Company, and that may be how the early seeds of golf were sown in present-day Jakarta. Would that be right? After Waterloo, the Dutch East Indies became French, but the French actually didn't have any interests out there. And the British had quite a lot of interests there, huh? Malacca and uh, a place like that, which is now Malaysia, India, and the Isles were all the Dutch East Indies. So the British had a large commercial interest there and didn't want the French actually to. So after the annexation of the Netherlands, uh, a small British fleet was sent to Batavia to take Batavia, and that was taken within... The only people sitting there were the Dutch, of course. Officially, it was French, but <laughs> there weren't any French. So they they easily took Batavia, planted the British flag there, and Raffles was made Governor General of Batavia. Uh, in and, and this was eighty nine, say, yeah? after the annexation of the Netherlands. So they basically took the Dutch East Indies. And then in 1815, after the defeat of Napoleon and the decision actually to establish the Netherlands as an independent sovereign state or kingdom, the big question was, and this was William I having this discussion with uh, Castle Ray and the, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the king, he said, look, you can establish the Netherlands as an independent state, but a, a, a state without colonies cannot survive. <laughs> An interesting remark, actually. So the the main income for the Netherlands would be international trade and the colonies. So if you take away, and Raffles had sent a letter to England and, and saying, we should never give up uh, the Dutch East, Ind East Indies, especially Java, which is hugely rich and uh, a main source of income for the United Kingdom. So there was a bit of a discussion going on, uh, but in the end, uh, because of the role of the Netherlands actually in the defeat of, of Napoleon at Waterloo, uh, they felt that they, they couldn't actually refuse to give the, the Dutch East Indies back to the Netherlands. So Raffles was told to give up the Netherlands, and 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 he was actually ordered to cross uh, uh, the the Sumatra Street. Street. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's uh, yeah. And on the point of uh, there was a, this small island of of Singapore. So he was instructed actually to have his base in Singapore and actually develop Singapore as a as a harbor town as a trading post. So that's how he. Raffles and Singapore started, or the Dutch East Indies given back to the Netherlands, I say around 1816, that time, and that Raffles had to establish himself on the other side of the road. The political decision was made, and, and part of the political decision actually to, to reinstate the Dutch East Indies as a colony of the Netherlands was a commercial collaboration and joint ventures for developing mainly Sumatra, and that's the island next to Java, which was kind of undeveloped yet, and to develop Sumatra in the 19th century and to set up plantations and build mines. So there, was a, there were a huge uh, tin and oil reserves, 
and the plantations were rubber, coffee, timber itself, things like that. And for the development of that, there was a lot of joint ventures were actually set up with with the British. And, And this actually brought the commercially the British and Dutch families together. And these were rich families, aristocratic families also. Actually, was the basis for, for a lot of interrelationships between the British and the Dutch families. So actually, back in the, these families were, you know, going back and forth and, and mostly established themselves in, uh, in The Hague. And what you see is that the beginning of golf in the Netherlands was uh, these families were... Who's, who, who had been educated in England too. There was an, also a British school in near The Hague where rugby, tennis, football, cricket were all introduced. Huh? The, those were the games of those days, huh? the new British games. There was this new culture of organizing games and set the rules and set the standard uniform rules, uniform clothing. It's all normal for us now, but don't forget it was kind of new in the 19th century. So a lot of, call it the British culture, was introduced to the Netherlands uh, through interrelationships between Dutch and British family, English, especially English families. You can actually see that the founder of or the first, or the, yeah, the founder of the, the Hague Golf Club, Van Brina, uh, his wife was basically uh, English. And the, the kids had been educated in England too, huh? you know, partly, huh? mostly in, in, in the Hague. But, and Bobby Borrell is an important Dutch guy. I've, I've written about him actually in, in Through the Green. It gives a great example of Anglo-Dutch relationships uh, and golf. He was considered by Horace Hutchinson to be the best golfer of his time. Of course, his father was uh, related to the uh, Waldorf family, the richest family in the U.S. So his his father's mother was a Waldorf. They were basically the prime socialites in, in Poe. And actually, you had Poe and Biarritz. Some considered Biarritz to be a a better golf course in I'm talking about the 1890s eh? the last decade of the 19th 19th century Belle Epoque it's a great time to to have been alive and to be part of actually the elite if you and uh, but anyway in Po the socialites of Britain and America uh, joined and the British socialites were were also Dutch. They were, but the Dutch socialites there were always married to the British. And at the Batavia Golf Club, I'm saying this because the Batavia Golf Club started in 1872, and I I don't think it was a a very active golf club, uh, but it was established by a, a British gentleman who, who was later, I think he represented the British government. And he was later posted in uh, the north of Australia and founded a golf club. There's in Golfica. There's an article about him, 
and he, he actually played an important role in the beginning of golf in Northern Australia. So after he left Batavia, I don't think it was mainly a, the, the, the Brits living there. So golf, don't forget in those days that you, you, golf was played by a, 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 with this new ball, not very popular yet. Uh, yeah, it was popular, but, you know, it was the gutter, gutter percha ball. How do you pronounce it, Perka or Percha? Percha. Percha, okay. And I, and I guess there's a serendipity there as well in that the raw material for the gutter Percha ball comes from... Malaysia. Malaysia. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that area, exactly. Uh, if you've had a good treatment by your dentist, it, there's, it, there's a big, large possibility that you've got some gutter Percha in your teeth. Oh, yeah? If you have a channel treatment... Yeah. Or a root, how do you call it? A root, root canal, yeah. A root canal. It's basically quite painful, yeah. but they basically empty it. Yeah. And then they put gutta percha in it. Wow, I didn't realize that. You're a mind full of uh, so much information, Robert. <laughs> well, that's why I use the word serendipity. Yeah. Uh, once you start scratching the surface, uh, there's so much more depth to history and so many it makes it yeah well i think you have to go, always go to the context to understand something yeah so if you want to understand the interrelationships between the oranges and the stewards you have to go to the history yeah. so what i've come across is that the kingship of james the fourth is actually hugely important in establishing a new culture and new games. Uh -huh. But I'm I'm basically inviting the Scottish historians to, to do more research. I haven't done more than pointing into a direction and saying, look, the game of golf in Scotland was developed around 1500 after the crossover of the catchpill ball to this game of golf as an individual game, playing a ball towards a, a target and being a hole in the ground and being played on links, land. So it's a natural ground to play a game with a stick and ball on. And those grounds were actually owned by the feudal system, basically owned by the king. And he would sometimes actually give grounds to a town like Brunswick Links, you know Brunswick Links. Yeah. And I think that by David the first that was given, uh, so it's a long time ago, it basically gave, given to the city of Edinburgh, to the civilians of, as a playground for a, eternity. That's why it's still a playground, you see. It's a royal gift. If the rules say uh, it has to be a playground forever, you're not allowed to change it, you see. Otherwise, they would have, Brunsfield links would have been developed in an urban area. I do think that Brunsfield links in the history of the game of golf is hugely important. It would be nice to see Scottish historians uh, look into that period of, say, in and around 1500, because Clearly, if you look at the material golf in Scotland is played with, first of all, the ball, it has to be, you know, those balls were available. It has to be 
that they used the catch bell ball, say the tennis ball, for playing uh, on on the links. Now maybe they made them stronger and 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 made them heavier. Many thanks for tuning in. As usual, you can find us online at firmandfast.golf or on Twitter at firmandfastgolf. Please continue to like, subscribe and comment. It really is appreciated. Until the next time, happy golfing.